a lot of the faculty that were medical ethicists, they would say to me things like, take off your nurse's hat <laughs> and put on the philosophy hat. And I'm like, no, no, you don't get it. I'm here because I have my nurse's hat on. And if I take it off, I'll probably just shatter. Welcome to the Clinical Appraisal Podcast. My name is Ian Lane, and on this show, we discuss the science and theory of nursing. I'm a critical care nurse and PhD student in nursing science focused on measurement and methodology. Importantly, nothing I say constitutes nursing advice. This is education only. And if you want to get in touch with me, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. If you want to donate to the show, links are in the description. And otherwise, like, comment, subscribe, and share the show if you enjoyed this episode. Joining me today is Dr. Pamela Grace. Pam is an ethicist and a philosopher of nursing, I would argue, um, but I'll let her tell you more about herself. Pam, thanks so much for joining me on today's episode. Oh, um, thank you for asking me. This is a great opportunity to, um, you know, to talk to people about what it is that nurses do and what our uh, responsibilities to the public are and why we should take those seriously. And just a brief background about me is that um, I actually trained as a nurse in England and came to America after working for a couple of years. And um, I worked for about 10 years in critical care in various areas and came across lots and lots of problems that at, at that time, so I'm not a young person, there was nobody really that I could bounce ideas off or say, is this me or is there something wrong with the situation? Um, and so eventually I decided, I, and the education I got in England was more of an apprenticeship. It was like a three-year diploma. So I decided to go back and get my bachelor's degree, which took me a while because I was working and just doing it part-time. And after I'd finished that, I realized the power of more education um, to help people think about things, but it still wasn't enough. So I went back and got a master's degree, and then I started doing primary care as an adult nurse practitioner, as well as working still in critical care, which is a bit of a mind-blowing experience, because when you're in primary care, everybody that comes in the door you think is terribly ill and might drop over at any minute because of the carryover from um, critical care. Anyway, during my master's degree, I took a bioethics course and had a fabulous um, a fabulous philosopher who taught it. He was not um, a healthcare person. But I realized that the tools that he gave the class and the way he got our class to think about problems was just what I needed to help me think about the problems in practice and what the root causes were and the idea that... Um, you know, I always thought I was a bad nurse if I couldn't get things done or there was pressure to do things a certain way. I thought there's something wrong with me. Everybody else is managing this. And um, it really just helped shift my perspective to see that actually there are lots of pressures on nurses from the institution um, and from the environment um, and the hierarchy in hospitals 
to um, take the blame on themselves rather than thinking about how could we act differently given the circumstances. So I said to my professor at the end of that class, what, what can I do to do this at a higher level? And he told me, uh, well, probably the best thing to do is to go and do a philosophy PhD with an, an emphasis or with a concentration. There are a few of them that have concentrations in medical ethics. And I said, but, well, you don't understand. I I left school at 16, you know, and all of this, I'm not like a an egghead, so to speak. And he <laughs> said, uh, yeah, he said, no, I, I think you can do it. Uh, just here's some remedial reading and there's some things you have to do before you go and do it. Anyway, the upshot of that is I got accepted to the University of Tennessee Knoxville's program, philosophy program and they did have a concentration in medical ethics and they had an applied portion which was good so for a long time that was a really good program and many of the graduates from that school are doing healthcare ethics now I was one of only two nurses in the program and the other nurse dropped out because she had two kids and it was too too much reading etc um but I still thought in doing that, that they still were focused on the dilemmas, like who gets the heart when there's not enough and the three people need it, or, um, you know, the kind of juicy issues, and that a lot of the faculty that were medical ethicists, they would say to me things like, take off your nurse's hat <laughs> and put on the philosophy hat. And I'm like, no, no, you don't get it. I'm here because I have my nurse's hat on. And if I take it off, I probably just shatter. <laughs> you know, it's like it, the reason I'm here is not to follow precisely the thinking of, um, you know, the historically renowned uh, philosophers so much as to think about why they were doing what they were doing and also how can I use those perspectives to inform my practice so actually I ended up persuading several of my um, fellow graduate students realized that they did not have the background I had and several of them became nurses after they got the PhD in philosophy which is kind of interesting so maybe that's just to say nurses can have a lot more they can have a lot more power than sometimes they take. Anyway, um, while I was doing that, I was also teaching in the College of Nursing at um, the University of Tennessee. And I was also working in ICU and I was also working in the free clinic. <laughs> and I was also providing occupational health to the veterinary school, which was quite an interesting change of venue. But um anyway so my job then in that setting was to make sure that I could take all of this stuff I was learning and make it relevant to nursing practice and to helping nurses uh, be empowered to speak up to articulate the problem and to place it in the right to place the responsibility in the right place or to assign the responsibility in the right place and not take it all on them. And 
And that got me interested in the idea of advocacy. And um, while I was in, um, while I was uh, thinking about what I wanted to do, I came across an article by a clinical ethicist that um, was complaining about some of her nurse colleagues using the idea of advocacy to forward or to advance the profession. And it just didn't sit right with me because I didn't think that's what we were using advocacy. It certainly wasn't what I was using advocacy for. But that prompted me then to do a deep dive into, like, what is advocacy? How did we get to think about the fact that our role was to advocate when one would think anybody in a hospital situation who is noticing problems with patients should be advocating for them? Um, so... I did a very deep philosophical analysis of advocacy, how it had been used in the past, how it was used by different professions. And I had a big aha that actually it comes from law. And when we speak about advocacy in the legal setting, um, we're really talking about the zealous defense of one person and that the lawyer who's defending that one person is not at the same time responsible for figuring out how all the other people they're taking care of or they're being responsible for how to balance those responsibilities they're just this person is their um their focus at this time and if i'm the lawyer i do not have to worry about how well the legal system's working at that level um to make to cut a long story short then uh, what came out of this is the idea that um, as a professional in healthcare or, or other service professions, we not only have to think about how we balance advocacy duties for the group of patients in front of us that we're responsible for, but how also we need to be looking at those problems that um, they're dealing with and what the root causes are. So then that also means that we have responsibilities for social justice and people could say well you know I don't have time for social justice I'm just um, you know a, a point of care nurse and I'm so busy with family and all of that stuff I don't have time to be doing anything else and that's true I mean we understand that but we do have the stories that other people don't have and we do have groups, uh, you know, we have organizations, uh, we have people we know who do have power to sort of initiate change. So uh, what we really do need to be doing is at least taking our stories and sharing them in a way that somebody who does have the power to make change can make change. There are several tendrils I would love to have followed. I think you did a really nice job, uh, of course, telling us your story and how you, you know, um, arrived where you're at now. And uh, certainly some of your interests um, in this space, but also giving some kind of hints at what you think are some tools that even bedside nurses could have, like using some of the stories that we have from the bedside to um, advocate on a broader scale, if I can use that word. Um, and I would like to follow up on that in a moment, but just to back up, you mentioned when you were doing, you were in your training during your PhD program that 
you were often asked to take off your nursing hat. And that resonates. I feel like a lot of nurses are are asked to kind of like set aside your bedside expertise for a moment and think about it from our perspective, whether it's the medical perspective or uh, the academic sense, the philosophical perspective. It sounds like a lot of the training that you were being exposed to was like a medical derivative of the um, utilitarian questions. Like it's like the railroad problem, right? Like three quarters of the program was pure philosophy. Mm. Okay, so it was, um, you know, the usual um, ancient and medieval and even contemporary philosophers and um, how they thought and why they thought like they did. The other um, 25% was the the ethics com- component. Um, yes, I did find that often the nurse's perspective was not understood. Um, and I had to make the case why all this is very good and it's very important to have the skills to look at a problem and pick it apart and say, here's the problem and here's some of the interdisciplinary thinking about how we resolve the problem. And I did notice that a lot of emphasis was put on the medical side of it and much less on the nursing side of it. Um, what is the microethics part of this? What is the everyday stuff? Now, more lately, uh, people like Bob Trug, who is um, a Boston um, physician, PD, I think he's an NICU physician, and also has some ethics background. And some of his colleagues have recently started calling these microethics problems. But at the time, those problems were seen as not what we were about because um, the program was a, a bio, well, it, they called the concentration medical ethics, but it was a bioethics issue. And for the listeners who don't know what bioethics is, um, it's really something that arose around, uh, it's a discipline that developed, a new discipline that developed around the 1950s um, when um, um, machines started being developed that could help um, people with kidney failure have dialysis. And there were not enough machines for the people that needed dialysis. And then it was seen that in the past, physicians had always made those kind of decisions. But this was a social decision rather than a medical decision, like who should get this machine. And so they started bringing in philosophers, theologians, other people to this um, field that they um, called bioethics, that looks at biotechnological advances and how that affects human beings. So that was kind of the emphasis. So my job, I saw, was to bring in the other parts of that, that, you know, those are important problems to solve. But still, at the bedside, There are so many other problems like not enough staffing, people um, arguing with each other, conflicting orders, 
pressure from peers to be a certain way. Like I, I remember when I worked in, um, so you can stop me if I go on too far. No, please. But I remember when I worked in, I was working also in critical care while I was um, doing all of this other stuff in Tennessee. And I always felt like um, I could use my judgment to decide whether a patient's family was actually doing them good while they, by being in the room or not. And so there was a rule at the time, 15 minutes every hour, as long as there wasn't something critical going on. But for some of my patients, I I really felt like if the family member was in the room, they were so helpful to the patient. Um, and so I would let my uh, family stay in if they were helpful. And um, I got into awful trouble from other nurses who didn't want to be bothered with the family. You know, they're interfering with my ability to give care. And why? And the talk then in the waiting room was, well, we get to go and sit in with the patient, <laughs> with with our family member. Um. Anyway, so all of that is to say there are so many more problems at the bedside that go unnoticed, but that really affect the well-being of patients. Are are these the microethics that you were speaking of? Yeah. yeah. So microethics are the problems at the bedside of getting people what they need or meeting the real needs. And when I say meeting the real needs, I mean having time to at least talk to the patient about who they are and what they want. Mm -hmm. This is why I asked you that question, because I feel like, you know, people often lose sight of the fact that um, as much as we need our medical colleagues and how, you know, keeping in mind the importance of the medical profession, the fact is that there are something like five to six times as many nurses as there are physicians. We spend about 10 times as much time, if not more, at the bedside throughout the day. I myself am also a critical care nurse, um, and it, I can resonate with many of the things that you are saying, particularly about like which families are helpful versus, I mean, in some case, outright harmful to their family members' daily needs. Um, it strikes me that there's so much substantively that goes on at the bedside that requires an ethical lens and that is often not given its due. And you strike me as uh, somebody who is a little bit of a rarity in the sense that I, like, I don't actually know uh, much about your field or how many nursing ethicists, I don't know if you would consider yourself a nursing ethicist per se, but like how many of you there are and it strikes me that we could use more of this kind of insight. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so that's an interesting question. Um, in fact, um, uh, a colleague of mine, or, or she was a, a PhD student of mine, Amy Milliken, and I um, just contributed um, a paper to a special issue of um, Nursing Ethics, which is the journal. It's International Journal for Ethical Issues in Nursing, if you like. Um, where um, so Amy for a couple of years was the um, she's a nurse with a PhD, but she did serve as the clinical ethicist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston for a while. And um, I um, do both academic stuff and still some ethics stuff. And in my program in. Tennessee, I remember a um, one of my 
um, professors saying, why do nurses call themselves, that do ethics, call themselves nurse, nurse ethicists versus clinical ethicists, which everybody else calls themselves, whether they're theologians, physicians, or whatever. And at the time, I didn't really have a good answer, but uh, since then, talking with Amy, we both... Um, she had told me that she used to call herself a nurse ethicist doing clinical ethics and that a physician did not take her seriously because of that. He said, what do I need a nurse to help me with about this ethical issue? So she realized that um, the roles are different, that as a clinical ethicist, you're really one of the multidisciplinary team that's trying to solve conflicts that are brought to your attention, not as part of everyday care, but as conflicts arise in the setting. From my perspective, a nurse ethicist is someone who understands what the ethical aspects of nursing are, um, knows how to address ethical issues in everyday practice that accrue to nurses, if you like, or that nurses face, and it also thinks about what are the what's what's the scope and what are the limits of what nurses should be doing. Um, so in that sense, um, um, there are quite a few of us that are nurse ethicists. I'm probably fairly rare in that I have a PhD in philosophy. Many nurses now, since bioethics has developed and developed, there are actually masters in bioethics programs. There's one. There's a. There's one at Harvard in Boston, and there are also doctorates of bioethics. Um, and so, probably, if I were doing it again, I could do a something like that. But I'm actually grateful that I did the philosophy one because I think it did give me a much a deeper grounding in the past ideas of what human life is about, um, how we sit in the world, etc., rather than just learning about, you know, the the dilemma kinds of things or conflict kinds of things. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I would say there aren't a lot of us that do actual nursing ethics, mm. but there are. There's a growing number. Yeah. That's heartening that there's a growing number. Um, and it is interesting to think about like having had training in or coursework in like what constitutes the good life in the kind of Aristotelian sense probably is helpful in a way that it's hard to appreciate if you didn't have that training. I want to back up for a moment and talk a little bit about something that you alluded to in your introduction, which is in regards to bedside nurses power to advocate and the definition of advocacy stemming from, you know, etymologically from the legal profession. Um, I want to just take a moment to set aside the latter part of that for the former, which is to say, I think one of the things we struggle with at the bedside is how to act despite the system that you alluded to, or that was implied anyway, in your introduction, the system itself exerts such a uh, an oppressive downward force it feels like sometimes on us that it's difficult to act and yet we must act in our roles oftentimes in ways that are at odds with our values if you could talk a little bit about your view on how you 
see the navigation of that process from a nurse's perspective at the bedside. Um, do you see ways out of that or around that or um, kind of what are your general thoughts about that? And then I can give you uh, a little bit of an insight as to why I'm asking this because I have it's there's a specific reason I'd like to chat about. Yes. Okay. Can I just finish the last thought I had about the other thing? Please. So yeah. I, I think the worry for me about clinical nurse nurses who are doing clinical ethics is that they lose the um, nursing perspective because that's still important in their job. Mm. Um, but go, now going back to um, how do nurses uh, manage to do the good thing when there are so many pressures not to, or to um, be expedient or to be task-oriented or to, you know, balance the, all the responsibilities you might have. And I've got, um, you know, a several-pronged answer to that. First of all, I think we need to do, all right, I'll start at the end. I think nurses need to be prepared with the tools to be able to articulate reasonably what the problem is in any given situation, why it's a problem, and what needs to happen for it to be resolved. Not, you know, all the steps of what needs to happen, but, you know, this is something we need a policy about, for example, or um, how can we, we've come across this problem three times now, how can we uh, work to resolve it? But I think before nurses can do that, they need a really good background in, first of all, what are nurses, what are nursing's goals about health and well-being and relieving suffering? What are nursing's perspectives, which is about humanizing the environment? And then they need the ability to articulate in a language that's understood by the other, the allied professions and administrators perhaps why this is a problem in ethical terms and i think a lot of people think ethics is a very esoteric topic that only a few rarefied people know how to deal with um but a few years ago some colleagues and i um actually got a grant to um prepare nurses to be an ethics resource on their unit. It was called the Clinical Ethics Residency for Nurses. And we did it at a couple of the major hospitals in Boston. And um, it was a three-year program. Each year we took a different cohort and each year we tried to build someone in the cohort from somebody who'd been there in the first year. So if it was someone from the MICU, for example, that had been in this program for a year, we tried the next year to add another person so that they would have some, uh, some backing and they could start things like nursing ethics rounds. And what we did with them, we basically um, prepared them in a multimodal fashion. So they had to give up one day a month and their um, charge nurse had to agree to let them go one day a month. And in the morning, we gave them sort of didactic stuff. It was cradle to grave. Um, so over the year, once a month. Um, so in the morning, we'd give them didactic. We'd bring in experts like legal experts and things like that. Um 
and then in the afternoon we'd have them role play how to do this. So and we do we did some simulation and we did some case analysis. And at the end of each year we had them write essays about what they'd learned and how they were using it. And they they almost all said it was transformative in terms of feeling like they had some power now to do something. Mm. But almost all of them said it needed to be ongoing. They needed to keep doing it. So this is a very long-winded answer to your question, and it may not even be an answer. I think we need to do a better job educating undergrads to understand the professional responsibilities and ways to articulate what the problem is while supporting them to know that for the first couple of years, they're still going to be not experts and they're still going to have to struggle with learning things and not to beat themselves up about it, but also not to forget the human being that they're caring for. Then we need to do a better job of graduate nurses preparing them to be ethics leaders. So especially now the DNPs taking off the Doctor of Nursing Practice, I do think those people ought to be prepared to be ethics resources for the nurses on units. But I, th I think what came out of our um, three-year program, developing nurses to be ethics resources, is that it can be done and that nurses can make changes in their unit and several of the units developed ethics rounds that then morphed into interdisciplinary rounds led by nurses. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, there was a there was definitely um, a sense of power for those nurses. So it, I think it's, um, I think when nurses understand that, A, they can only change some things, not everything, and they can do what they can do in the moment. And then after the fact, maybe put things into place that will lessen the likelihood there's a problem later. And then also understand um, things like, okay, so I worked on a cardiovascular unit for a while uh, in a rural in Tennessee. And we get all of these people in and with cardiovascular problems and losing our legs mostly, uh, you know, amputations, etc., from um, inadequate primary care or no insurance. It's like, well, you can keep putting Band-Aids on the wounds, but really you do have a responsibility to try and, um, you know, address the bigger situation in what ways you can. And I think that's sometimes where specialty organizations or even the ANA and its branches can be helpful because there are groups that work on things like that. You don't have to worry about asking me questions. It's <laughs> 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 a long-winded answer, but... No, it was perfect. You have uh, an interesting perspective, too, as somebody who worked both at the bedside and as a primary care nurse practitioner at the same time, which doesn't often happen, I feel like. it's a, That's a big burden to bear, I think, for anybody. I don't know how you did it, but um, but it gave you an interesting perspective, I assume, because you know when you would work at the bedside, you would see kind of all this upstream stuff that may have been preventable, possibly, in the community if there was better access to primary care or what have you. Um, which, did that influence your thoughts on, like, how 
the ethics of these situations evolve over time too? You know, um, that's a great question. And I don't remember. Hmm. You know, I don't remember. I think I always, I think I always had a sense because I'd, the other perspective is I had worked in a national health system. Um, and so to me, it was incredible that some people would have no health insurance and no access to health services. Mm. So I think probably both of those things, you know, now you're asking me, I was going to say, I have no idea. But then when she asked me, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I was appalled. Um, so I worked um Florida. I worked in a lot of poor states as well as working in California. Um, and I think I was just appalled by how people didn't have access to basic health care. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable. So I think that was part of it too. And also taking care of veterinary, uh, the veterinary school, um, occupational health i found that a lot of um or not a lot but several of the people that worked there had no health insurance they were working part-time but they still had to be you know checked for whether they needed rabies shots or whatever um you know uh, kind of preventative things from the animals um but like one time i had a, a young girl she was 30 i think and her blood pressure was extremely high. And I, I said to her, um, did you know your blood pressure was high? And she's like, oh, yeah, there's nothing much I can do about can't afford meds and whatever. Or we didn't have anybody following her. Well, luckily, we did have, and I worked in this area, which is a, a, a we did have a free clinic um, in the town called the Health Right Clinic. And I actually did all of my practica for the adult, you know, the ANP there. And so I was able to refer, I knew what the resources were. I was able to refer her there to get a primary care provider to follow her. Um, but how many people don't have that? I was going to say it must have felt for you like a drop in the ocean. Still an important one. I'm sure a meaningful one, but um, it still highlights the need for this broader level systems change for the sake of everybody. Um, I want to back up for a moment to something you said that I think is really important because oftentimes I think about, you know, being at the bedside, feeling powerless in your day because your day is getting away from you and things are stressful. And yet you mentioned something as simple as learning to articulate the problem and possible solutions. I just want to highlight that for people listening, because I think that is actually remarkably important, even if seemingly simple, because it's not as though we are the, we're learning from those kind of uh, above us in the healthcare hierarchy, like physicians and attendings, for example, but they also learn from us. And I know that sounds trite and kind of, to be honest, I think we forget that we actually have a lot to teach other professionals too. And if we are able to articulate our feelings into thoughts that are transferable and comprehensible, I think that actually can do a lot in terms of planting seeds in the minds of other professionals, which I think actually might have an influence down the line, possibly for the next patient, if not for this one, which is not unimportant. I think that's, you know, maybe it's naive, but I think that's actually a very important 
even if seemingly small dent in the problem. You're absolutely right. Um, it, it, it's also important to remind, so A, to be able to articulate what the problem is from ethical terms, like this patient wants this, but her family's pressuring her the other way. Her sense of autonomy is being challenged. Let's look at that. And then to emphasize that the other members of the team, we have mutual goals. We're here for this patient. And to remind them of that, um, from the nursing perspective, that means that we need to be supporting this patient to get what they need. Um, and it may be even that we're empowering the patient to ask for what they need and giving them the sense that they have rights to make their own choices. Um, now, having said that, um, there are always um, cultural differences. And so I don't want people to come away with the idea that I'm emphasizing that autonomy is the only way to look at things, because certainly for some cultures, it's the family decision making that's necessary. On the other hand, we can help the families think about the patient and what they want, even if it's family decision making. But but I think the most important if I had to give three important stances, first of all, nurses need to know they often do know what the right thing is, but they don't always know how to articulate it. And that's a simple learning. I mean, you know, uh, just sort of learning for yourself what the different terms mean, like beneficence is the goals of nursing to do good and not to do harm or in if we have to do harm, like turning someone who's in pain, how do we lessen the harms? I mean, um, the goals of nursing, the goals of medicine, they're beneficent goals. So, you know, just having that in mind, a bit of that language um, and the idea of autonomy, which is, you know, a really tricky concept because it doesn't mean people have a right to make bad decisions. They do have a right to make bad decisions if they that we've been responsible about helping them think about what effects this particular action they want to take is going to have on them um and of course nobody's really autonomous because we're all influenced by different things so to sort of take that into account and say what's getting in the way of this person but just having that knowledge of what that concept means um i mean really in a sense everything else is the nursing process like, what's going on here? What are the nuances of the situation? What sorts of things will allow us to do good? The nursing process and ethical analysis are not unsimilar. Hmm. Say more about it, that. I'm interested in that. Well, so um, the nursing process is about taking all the facts in, looking at the context, looking at the patient as an individual, and coming up with um, some ideas about how to provide them with what they need, like a care plan or whatever. Ethical decision-making is really, in a sense, you could say it's even synonymous with clinical decision-making because it's about how do you get this person what they need in spite of obstacles. Um, so if you like, it, it's not that difficult for nurses to do. They just need to know they have the right to do it and they have the obligation to do it. So, you know, just 
preparing nurses with that idea that they already know often what needs to happen. So how do you articulate that in a way that it's very hard for someone to object to? Because if you object to it and you supposedly have mutual goals, you're saying that your way counts, not the patient's. Mm. Um, and I think a very important, another important aspect of that is that nurses have to learn how to separate their emotional take on something from the ability to rationally um, explain what's going on. And I think nurses sometimes have trouble separating the emotional part. Um, and nurses aren't always right. I mean, sometimes we do think we know what the right thing is to do, but we're not privy to all the information. Um, you know, uh, we we might think this ought to happen a certain way and that this, um, this person needs this kind of um, intervention. Um, but we don't know that other things have come to light that we're not aware of. So... We also need to be sure um, that we do know what's going on. Like, what are the nuances of the situation? And I think one way for nurses to do that is to think about what assumptions are being made about this situation. And then check those assumptions um, away as a way of fact-finding. You know, like thinking that this physician just wants to get this patient, you know, get this patient to do this so they can get on with their other work. Is that really what's going on? Why don't you just ask, like, why, what, what are your thoughts here? Instead of reading minds to actually ask, what are you thinking? That is a very helpful way to frame that, I think. And I really appreciated the idea that the nursing process and the ethical decision-making process clinically might be indistinguishable um, in theory. So this ties in really nicely to what I would like to ask you. And I'd like your honest feedback on this because this is an idea I've been mulling over for the last couple of months. Um, interestingly, this podcast is sort of premised on my obsession with methodology and with theory. I very much think that without a theoretical framework, in a world of disconnected facts, you can't really make sense of things. You need a guiding philosophical framework for your practice, but that entails thinking logically through, you know, what are the different frameworks that I could use for this and does it make sense and is it reasonable, yada, yada. But then uh, as somebody who trained in a different field, actually, this is my second career, I come to this with a different experiences and kind of a more statistical expertise than I think most of my peers do. Um, if I could be so bold as to say that, but I just think that methods is a very important and empower and yes, empowering way to think through clinical sciences like nursing and medicine. All that aside, I think people would be surprised to know that I think that there are inherent limitations in the application of methods to clinical decision-making and I think that no, even if you had the perfect trial, you would only be able to answer minuscule clinical questions and that the broader context leaves much to be desired. And what rushes in to fill the, that space? And how do you make these clinical decisions in the face of 
inherently lacking scientific evidence, even if the methods are great with the evidence you do have. I think the only reasonable thing that should guide our decision-making in those spaces is ethics. And I know that that's a very ambiguous kind of broad thing to say. Um, but first, what do you think about the idea that, you know, the ethical way of knowing vis-a-vis uh, -vis Carper um, should be the foundation of practice and that scientific evidence-based decisions should be nested within that. Uh, and that what nurses ought to do first and foremost is do the right thing by their patients. Busy, you just gave your own answer, <laughs> but kind of, but I'll tell you what I think. Okay. Um, one thing I learned from um, looking at all these philosophers, different takes on things and different theories and especially related to moral theory, like what is the right way to live? What I learned was that all of those theories are flawed in some way, and they were all developed out of a response to the environment at the time. Um, you know, if you think about utilitarianism, it came about because of the Industrial Revolution and the fact that a few people had all the power. Does it sound familiar to you? <laughs> <laughs> a few people had all the power, uh, you know, and from Kant, um, from duty-based theories, the idea that um, if everybody, you know, sort of used their own ability to think about what the right thing was, then they do what their duty was rather than look at consequences. So, you know, all of these different theories, though, have problems in practice. So I think you had asked me once before about the meta-ethical issues. Mm -hmm. So meta-ethics from my perspective, having, you know, done this big course of study, meta-ethics is really about looking at um, which moral theory amongst all the moral theories is a good moral theory. In other words, it's a, a bigger view of what's okay to use and what isn't. We don't need that in um in nursing because we already have decided over the years what our goal is if you like or you know our sort of set of goals are why do we exist we exist to provide a good that nobody else is providing and that's related to human functioning and flourishing and yes there are overlaps with other disciplines um, and it's the perspective of looking at people in context and the humanization that has come to be the goal. So in a sense, and I'm not sure if I'll answer this so you can rein me in if not, in a sense, I have always found that something more like pragmatism, like the American pragmatic approach to problem solving is a better way to go because it doesn't hinge on knowing what the absolute right answer is to all issues of, of a kind. Um, it, it takes as a starting point the fact that we can't probably know if there is an absolute answer or what it would be. But the goal of pragmatism is to is a practical one. It's there is a problem to be solved what do we know about the ways to solve this problem and which of those ways is likely to get it solved? 
And so um, I think because we know what our goals are and we know what the nursing problems are, or, I mean, we don't all know them, but nurses know which one they're interested in, then what we need to look for is something that will give us the most insights about how to solve that problem. And, you know, so in a sense, that's why I think uh, multiple methods of looking at a problem, if you're going to do the, you know, more advanced research focused, um, especially for you doing your PhD, how are you going to solve a problem that's really bothering you? In a sense, it's better to make yourself a model that's based on initially how is this a nursing problem? What goals does it meet? Um, what kinds of methods will help us get at the bigger picture of this? Um, and then, you know, go for it and revise it as you go. But I think you're absolutely right that no one method can give you the whole picture that a lot of times there has to be some interpretation or some checking of whether this problem has actually been solved um and i i just have to say that i really do have a problem with evidence-based practice oh, please. Uh, <laughs> so we don't have evidence for a lot of our practices when we do use evidence, it should inform our practice, but it shouldn't be based on it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, um, because if we base it on the evidence, we're not necessarily taking into consideration individual differences. Mm -hmm. Like we've got all these lovely formulas for making sure things aren't forgotten when we're taking care of something like post-cardiac surgery or something. We've got all these nice protocols, but not all elements of the protocol suit all patients. And if we just go by, oh, we're basing ours on this formula, then we forget to look at who it doesn't suit and why it doesn't suit that person. And what we don't know about this problem, you know, which is lots and lots of things. So in Europe, they're going towards evidence informed. In other words, we have a practice. We know what our practice is. We're going to take the evidence we can and inform our practice while knowing that we don't have all the evidence we need. We can't base it on evidence because anyway. That... What do you do when you don't have any? What did so, you do when you don't have any? Or when you use the evidence and that's so narrow, that's all you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, evidence-based was always, I think, or at least it evolved into something of a caricature after a while. I think the idea of an evidence-informed way of practicing is much more sophisticated and appropriately nuanced. Um, but we haven't got... I made that criticism. I didn't get anywhere with it for, for, for our... For, oh, that's... For our DNP program, I made that case that uh, an evidence-based course should be named evidence-informed, but I didn't get anywhere. So I'm only so effective as an advocate. <laughs> well, maybe there are some faculty listening who can get on board. But that I think that that's probably a, a very interesting, albeit separate episode we could have um, on the topic of evidence-based versus evidence-informed practice. 
Uh, in the very brief time we have left, because I know we're coming up on time and I don't want to keep you, um, you mentioned our obligation in nursing is to follow our nursing ethics. And there is a new uh, standard of nursing ethics coming out in, I think you mentioned it was 2025. Um, I know that you've played a, a significant role in the development of that, but I, I wanted you to, if you wouldn't mind, recap the story that you told my class when you came recently to talk to us about the gentleman in the military who was a nurse, is a nurse, and um, he was caught in an ethical bind. And then because of the standards of practice of clinical ethics in nursing was able to be reinstated. Could you give our listeners a bit of an... Yeah, certainly. So this is in the public domain, although his name isn't, and I don't know who he is. Okay. Um, but a few years ago, I'm not sure how many years ago, when there were um, when the prisoners were uh, at Guantanamo Bay, which I think there's still a few left. I don't think it's been closed yet. But um, just as a reminder, um, that Guantanamo Bay housed prisoners that had been um, called from various places um, in response to 9-11. And they were not given any rights. Um, they weren't even allowed to um, go before a judge and plead the case. And it turned out later that a lot of these um well, a fair proportion of these people had just been farmers and they'd offered money to turn people in. Uh, so a lot of, or, or a substantial number of people were turned in. Anyway, that's kind of beside the point. But they had no, uh, suffice it to say, these prisoners had no recourse. And this person I'm talking about um, was a Navy nurse. And I was contacted by his lawyer who I don't know how the lawyer got my name, but I do do some expert witness stuff, so he may have got it that way. And he said to me, um, I'm, re I'm representing this nurse who has uh, refused to force feed prisoners at Guantanamo who were on a hunger strike because he felt like it was he was torturing them and taking away their rights. And uh, the Navy... Um, sanctioned him, took him off duty, and uh, tried to take his license away, uh, saying that his first responsibility was to the um, naval command, even though he was a nurse, and what he was being asked to do was a nursing job. So I said to him, well, I, I can help you with that, but I think a better thing for you to do is, um, because this is supported in the Code of Ethics, means that the Code of Ethics is a lot stronger than one thinks it is, I'm going to put you in touch with the um, Centre for Human Rights and Ethics at the ANA, um, uh, because I think getting the um, united front of the nursing bodies is going to be more powerful for you. And in light of that, then the AMA, um, the American Academy, a lot of different bodies came together and said, um, a person has to be have a right to make a conscientious objection. And the nursing part of that was that the code of ethics is actually non-negotiable. It means, which means that um, it covers all nurses in all settings in the U.S. And the reason they made it non-negotiable in part was 
for a time, some of the individual institutions were uh, wanting to tell nurses what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Anyway, um, because of this power of these groups to show that nurses have a responsibility to do the right thing, even when they're in a situation where they might be expected to obey the orders of their superiors, he was actually exonerated and um, he offered his position back, but he didn't go back and who would? Um, and, um, you know, his license was cleared. So just to say that um, our code of ethics is a very powerful tool. And so I think people don't know what's in it. And I also think if it was more publicly available, it, it would give us um, a public support for being able to do what we're supposed to be doing. And I would say one last thing. I think if nurses struggle too much with problems, they probably ought to try and contact their um, ethics consult service or an ethicist in a local institution that there are resources there. Maybe that's a way to finish is to say there are resources out there. You do not have to struggle on your own. Pam, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Well, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, my passion is for developing nurses' ability to do this. So thank you for asking me.